Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. We begin our journey into the book of Nehemiah. I remind you that Nehemiah was once a single work with the book of Ezra. At some point, they were separated into two different books. Nehemiah's name means the Lord will comfort, which is going to be interesting because Nehemiah is going to turn to the Lord for his comfort. Nehemiah understands his calling as a mandate to reconstruct Jerusalem's walls, to increase the population of the city, to end economic exploitation, to organize the temple bureaucracy, and to expel the foreigners. People are going to resist his reforms every single step of the way. They're going to do the work. They're going to cooperate with him, but they're going to grumble about it and not be happy. And some are going to seek to undermine the work. And so ultimately, he will appeal to God's grace to remember his accomplishments. At the end of a lot of the sections, you'll, you'll hear him say, um, may God remember that I have done this because he has no expectation that anyone else is going to remember or appreciate it. Ultimately, what we get with Nehemiah is a portrait of someone stubbornly faithful to God and persistent in his mission. Let's jump into chapter one. We're in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, so we're around 445 BC. There's a a Jewish community still living um, in the exile lands. They didn't come home after they were set free. That community, the Jewish community, reaches out to a Jew who is an officer in the king's court for help with what's going on in Jerusalem. In verses 4 through 11, we see that Nehemiah's first response to the news is to talk to God about the report. That's a good message for all of us. When we hear something, go to God first, not last. He does this with prayer and fasting. This shows him to be a faithful Jew, even though he is not living in the land. Nehemiah stands in the tradition of Isaiah, who in the year of King Uzziah's death, says, here am I, send me. That's basically what he says is there is a need. It has come to my attention. God, it appears that I'm the person who could do something about this. So lead me and guide me. Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. We also heard about a cupbearer back in the story of Joseph in Genesis. Joseph is imprisoned with a cupbearer, Genesis 40. We also hear cupbearers mentioned in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9. But a cupbearer served the wine at the king's table. They would be refilling the glasses. Um, there were constant plots to kill the kings, to poison them in the food was a very common way of doing that. So the cupbearer needs to be incredibly trustworthy. They would even be expected to taste the wine on a regular basis. When you get a new batch of something coming in, you try it first so that if it's poisoned, you die, and then we know not to serve it. But you wouldn't want a person in that position who would cooperate with someone trying to poison you. So Nehemiah is loyal to his faith 
and to his God, he's also loyal to the king. He's a man of integrity. In chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah cannot be content with doing well himself while his ancestral home and people suffer. He must use his blessings and his circle of influence for good. This was also a story that we saw come out of Esther. Mordecai has to challenge her to you, you can't just stay in there and be Queen Esther while the Jewish people are being killed. You must use the position you find yourself in, all the blessings of your life, to work in the direction of God's will. And that would be a message for us as well. He's Nehemiah becomes noticeably sad and distressed over the news that he has heard and the calling that he's feeling on his heart. He's never been downcast in the presence of the king before, so the king notices and he asks. It's a kindness on the part of the king to notice that a servant is having a mood. He makes a request of the king. Any time making such a request, any request, would have been risky. But making this kind of request would be incredibly risky. He asked to go home and make it better. He also boldly asked for all the materials and the supplies to do the work. And he's granted both of these things. He's made the governor of Jerusalem. Verses 9 and 10, he makes his trip with the official documents that attest to the fact that he's not being treasonous. He's coming on orders of the king. Um, he's appointed a governor of Judea, of this Jerusalem area, and he will serve in that role for around 12 years. The other governors of the area were not happy about this. First of all, somebody lost this territory because it had fallen under the governorship of one of the others until now. And it's an end to using their positions to make Jerusalem a supply room and a playground. So those governors are being thwarted in what they're doing and losing their power, and they're not happy about it. In verses 11 through 16, Nehemiah goes out and surveys the area. He does this at night to assess the extent of the work. He's working privately so that he can assess and make plans, one without influence. He wants to see the reality before someone has time to spin it to him. And two, he doesn't listen to the grumbling yet. Um, let me get a grip on what's going on and a plan, and then we'll deal with your attitude about it. So he wants to do the survey and make a plan before everyone knows what he's doing. Verses 17 through 20, we find that now he has a plan and he has the authority to enact the plan. So he talks to the people and to their local leaders. The people are on board. They seem excited about it. Um, other governors are going to ridicule the very idea and they're going to question whether his authority is legit. Um, they basically stand over to the side laugh, heckle, and point fingers saying, you're never going to be able to do that. Uh, it's too big of a task. You're not going to get this. be able to get these people to do it. Um, but Nehemiah won't be discouraged or deterred. He's been given a, a ministry, a call from God, and he's going to stay the course. In chapter 3, the work begins on the walls. 
This is a powerful story of a community in solidarity. They're committed to accomplishing God's plan. There is tremendous power in unity. When we get behind a vision, when we lean in to what we're doing, we can accomplish more, the Bible says, more than we can ask or imagine God is able to do with us and through us, and hopefully never in spite of us. In chapter 4, we see that the governors are still unhappy. That shouldn't surprise us at all. In verses 4 and 5, we see a prayer for justice. Nehemiah basically says, let them reap what they sow. Turn what they're doing and their attitude back on them. Psalm 137 contains similar kinds of thoughts and similar anguish. Um, We sometimes find these requests of God disturbing but we must always remember to put our place in, put ourselves in the place of the people being oppressed and understand the frustration and the anger and the um, hopelessness sometimes that is found there that leads to these kinds of requests. In verse six, despite the opposition, the work proceeds and they get the wall up to half of its height. That's a start. Um, a half height wall would have been about all people could build without now having to have like scaffolding and stuff to continue. In verses 7 through 14, we find a plot to attack this work from the outside. The people are also getting tired. They begin to doubt whether or not they can complete the job, and they're fearful. They're worried about their safety. This reminds me of the situation we're in now, living in COVID times. Everybody's anxious. They're getting tired. They're discouraged. Um, They wonder what's going on, what's going to happen to our church, to our churches. How will we ever rebuild? And we need leaders who can stay focused on the vision, who can keep putting that before us. We need to be encouraged to trust in God and not lose hope. In verses 15 through 23, we see that that's exactly what Nehemiah does. He keeps them motivated and working. He adjusts the workflow as well to accommodate the need for security. So now half of them are going to work on the construction. Half of them are going to be security. And the load bearers who are bringing the supplies and keeping the materials they need where they are working will keep one hand free to defend themselves if they need to. He also put watchmen in the towers and up high with trumpets. So there's constant vigilance and looking to see if there's an approaching enemy. And if they hear the sound of the trumpet, everyone is to stop what they're doing and go to the trumpet sound so that they can work together to defend. In verse 23, it says that Nehemiah did not take off um, his clothes. That when you were working, you would take off your outer tunic and just have on like your undergarments, your under tunics to work. You would have wanted to protect and make your outer garments last as long as possible. Um, This is would be the equivalent of dress clothes and work clothes. So Nehemiah stayed at the ready all the time. He stayed ready to fight. They never let their guard down. In verse 5, he now talks about the oppression. Verses 1 through 13, there is scarcity of food. There is um, economic repression that is happening from the other governors and from the outside, as well as from the empire as well. And there's exploitation happening within the community. And this makes Nehemiah angry. 
Nehemiah may not be able to change what the empire, what the Persian empire requires in the way of taxes to them, but they don't have to exploit one another in order for that to happen. We believe that the local population at this time was around 10,000. Only 3 to 5% of those would have been landowners. The other 90 to 95% would have been peasant workers on that land. Now, King Darius ruled from 522 to 486 B.C., and he allowed for the temple rebuilding in Jerusalem in 515 B.C. But in the time after that, the policies of the Persian Empire gradually changed from generosity to heavy taxation. This is very similar to what happened with the story of Joseph, where the Hebrew people found great favor when Joseph was second in command to the Pharaoh. But after Joseph died and a new Pharaohs came along in the 400 years after, they became enslaved in Egypt. So the policy has changed over this time. The Persian Empire is fighting the rising Greek Empire. So they need resources to fund that war. So they begin to tax the outer areas, particularly the people that they've already conquered. And so the taxation has become heavy. Famine has struck, and that makes the situation even worse. If the land did not produce enough to meet the tax burden, then they had to borrow it from others. And then if you could not pay back what you had borrowed from others, you the lien holder could take one of your children as a servant to pay off that debt. Um, the enslavement of daughters was particularly distressing because they would also be used sexually very often. Um, slaves had no control over their body or their um, coming and going. Um, this was never supposed to be the way it happened among God's people. You remember the land was supposed to be evenly divided. Sabbath years required that the lands go back to the original tribe so that there never became this kind of inequity between the haves and the have-nots. And it was never supposed to be that Israel was enslaving their own people, much less using the female slaves for sexual gratification. All of this would have been incredibly appalling, and I'm not surprised that Nehemiah is angry. Nehemiah is probably confused why everybody else is not angry about it as well. Nehemiah has walked away from a life of comfort and success, and he finds his people mistreating one another for wealth. They have become their own oppressing empire, and he's absolutely appalled. He's also heartbroken. This, he knows, is not God's will, and God cannot bless them when they are behaving this way. So he enacts some reforms, and he cancels all the debts. He returns all the land and returns all the children to their families. Nehemiah believes that God created the earth with with all that humanity needs to survive. We don't have to oppress one another. We simply need to be willing to share what is out there. Oppression and greed are both unnecessary, and they are disallowed when we follow God. The inequities that create suffering are a result of sin, and we should not tolerate them in our communities of faith. He then gives them a visual lesson. He shakes the folds of his tunic, and he says to them, may God shake us like this if we keep doing these things. And the people repent. They agree with him. 
Um, some of them are agreeing with him because he's the governor. He's the one in authority. Others are agreeing because it is, in fact, the right thing to do. This reminds us that God demands that we work toward abundance for all, not just for a few. Um, and his picture here is very much like that of creation at Eden. And we believe that God is always trying to draw the world back to its original created intent, which is one of abundance and hope, a system that operates on love, not greed, and oppression, and one that is in relationship with God. In verses 14 through 19 of chapter 5, we see that Nehemiah leads by example. He foregoes the privileges that would be accorded accorded to his position, and he works for the good of all the people, not just for himself. He doesn't tax the people to make his life easy. In fact, he works alongside them. He shares with the community what he has. He shares with them the things that he was entitled to, to have for himself. Um, This would have been unusual in a governor. He's a good leader. In verse 19, he asks God to remember all that he is doing because the people are not appreciating it. As we move into chapter 6, in verses 1 through 9, other local officials are confused. They don't know what to think of someone who doesn't have their selfishness and, and ambition. They request a meeting with Nehemiah, but Nehemiah declines. Um, as I said, most of the governors would not have worked like this themselves. So they assume that he's rebuffing them because he's too good or because he's plotting something. They don't believe he's really too busy um, to meet with them. After four requests, they share the gossip story that their minds have created. Um, You're planning a rebellion, and that's why you won't meet with us. Uh, Nehemiah denies the accusation, uh, and he refuses to be intimidated by their threats. You can make up stories about me if you want, but you're still not going to manipulate my behavior. I have a goal. I have a calling. I'm going to stay focused. In verses 10 through 14, Shemaiah, one of his own, plots against him. Shemaiah is probably one of the chief priests. He's in his chamber room. This would have been where he stayed when he was serving in the temple. Um, He's shut up there or he's confined to his house, it says. Uh, he's not an invalid. That's not what it's implying. He's not a homebound person. He is either unclean because his temple duties have exposed him to something or he's made a mistake, or much more likely, he's pretending to be pious. He has shut himself up for prayer and fasting with a pretense of devotion to God. So he wants everybody to think he's praying and seeking God. But he tries to scare Nehemiah by telling him there's a plot against his life and get him to leave his post, stop working and go hide in the temple so that they can't find you. Um, Shemaiah would have used this against him if he had done it. It might have been that Shemaiah was even planning to kill him, like, come hide with me in the temple and I will kill you. I'll blame it on the others 
the other governors that you won't meet with who've hired me to do this. That'll scare everyone else and it'll derail the work on the temple. I can keep my position of power. I can keep my connection to the other governors where they're paying me off and I'm making life good for me. So he may have been very much a part of that plot. And it really does kind of imply that that is what is happening. Nia sees Sanballat and Tobiah, the other governors, as enemies. But it, we see that they have a strong following among the people. Um, they are These people who are loyal to them are probably benefiting from their oppressive policies, like, let me come raid your area and take from your neighbors and I'll pay you to look the other way while I do. In verse 14, we see that his prayer indicates that there are others that feel this way, not just Shemaiah. In verses 15 through 19, nevertheless, despite all of this that's going on, they complete the work. And that absolutely stuns the enemies. Nothing annoys the people who oppose you more than you succeeding. Living well, following God, following his plan really is the best revenge. In verse 17, we see that the nobles of Jerusalem, the upper class people, are communicating with Tobiah. They're talking well of Tobiah in front of Nehemiah, which would be inappropriate. And they're getting Nehemiah to make comments about them. Like, hey, have you heard what Tobiah has said about you? And then anything Nehemiah said about, well, you know, consider the source. They'd go back and tell Tobiah. Um, Tobiah has made marriage alliances with these people that has compromised these people's loyalty. Um, They have a reason to be cooperating with Tobiah because they have family members. Rather than being respected for what he has accomplished, Nehemiah is disdained by this group of people. Many are siding with his rivals. Um, He's faithfully doing the work of God. But the lesson we learn, and that gets repeated to those of us who try to lead faithfully over and over and over, is that faithfully doing God's work does not always bring you any rewards at all. Um, I'm going to stop here, pick up with chapter 7 in the next podcast. Even though the reading was for chapters 1 through 9 this week, you'll find 7, 8, and 9 in the next podcast. Oh, 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 oh,